0: Before we look into God's Word together this morning, a simple prayer request. The street in front of my house, the alley behind my house, have recently become a center point for prostitution in our neighborhood. And as Karen and I watch these young women, our heart breaks for them. No young woman aspires to become a prostitute. Little girls don't dream of being prostitutes. Studies have shown that most women who end up in prostitution were victims of sexual abuse as children or as youth, and they're often driven by economic desperation. But as we watch these young ladies selling themselves, uh, our hearts are broken. I said to Karen the other day, I I just want to go out and start talking to them. And then I thought, everybody on this street knows who I am. So if I'm seen talking to a prostitute… But then right after that thought, I remembered that's what Jesus got blistered for, and that's why they said, look, he's a friend of hookers and tax collectors and so on, but just pray with us that Karen and I and ACAC will be able to put together an appropriate response to reach out to these young women in our neighborhood with the love of Christ. You know, we're going to see today that numbered among Jesus' admiring followers were women he had rescued out of prostitution. They actually offered up some of the most vivid examples of worship in the New Testament. So just stand with us in prayer that God will show us the right way. Uh, Yes, I'm willing to be a part of it, but my initial hunch is some godly women who would be willing to just walk our streets and and talk to these young women could be very, very effective in this kind of a ministry. And and if God lays something like that on your heart, uh, let me know. Let me know. And then when I see you walking, I won't pray for you. I'll I'll pray with you, all right? Our 91-week journey through God's Word this past week took us through the Psalms and not some of the easiest psalms to read because a lot of them were written when David was in dire straits and he was just looking for a place to land. And I want to consider one of those this weekend. It's Psalm 40. You read it this past week. And I want to read some excerpts from the fifth verse of that psalm and then from the 12th verse of that psalm. David said, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us, If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Then in verse 12, he said, Evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities, my sins, are more numerous than the hairs of my head. Today, I want to join David in focusing on two things that can't be numbered things that cannot be numbered. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, you know I can't preach and teach apart from the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And you know we can't understand and apply your truth apart from the Holy Spirit's work. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us for the proclamation, the reception, and the application of the truth that sets the soul free. Father, I pray this for the honor of Christ. I pray this for the welfare of the church and I pray this for the welfare of broken people like those young women in my neighborhood who need to see Jesus. And I pray these things in His great name, amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. Back in the 80s, I was traveling by car through Western Pennsylvania with a veteran Alliance pastor. We were visiting a select number of our Alliance churches in Western PA on behalf of the ministry of Naya College and Alliance Theological Seminary. And so we had a lot of time to just talk about ministry in the car as we traveled from church to church, and I was in my first pastorate, and I shared with him some of the challenges I was facing and some of the struggles I was having. And he responded with an unannounced pop quiz. He asked me this question. He said, Rock, do you remember that portion of Scripture where David said, with God's help, I can run through a troop and I can scale a wall? And I said, I do remember that, though secretly I was glad he didn't ask me for the reference because I wouldn't have been able to give that, and I bet you wouldn't either, so I'm in good company. He said, well, let me ask you a question based on that. What's the very first thing you need in order to run through a troop and scale a wall? And I paused for a moment, and I said, you need faith. And he said, "Wrong." He said, you do need faith, that comes later. What's the very first thing you need if you are got to run through a troop and scale a wall, symbolic for overcoming spiritual opposition? I said, I don't know, what? He said, you need a troop and you need a wall. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those duh kind of moments. Okay? But we often overlook the most obvious things, don't we? Yeah, we dig into the complex things and we overlook the obvious. And, and he was trying to send me a subtle message. He was trying to remind me that it often takes a test to produce a testimony. In fact, the first four letters of testimony are what? T-E-S-T-Test. Test. Now, notice I said often, not always. Because the testimony is an account of God's loving provision. God's loving protection. And if you're paying attention, the children of God experience His loving protection and His loving protection every moment that we live. So we don't need to be facing some challenge. We don't need to be in some dark pit. We don't need to be in some dark hour in order to have a testimony. A testimony can grow out of simple appreciation for the ongoing love of God. In fact, I would suggest more testimonies ought to flow out of appreciation for our daily installments of God's love. But let's be honest with one another. When things are going well, we don't tend to testify. We tend to take our blessings for granted. We're just relieved to have a season without testing, and worse yet, sometimes we're inclined to believe that the lack of a test indicates God's happy with everything that He finds within our heart, and that can be an erroneous conclusion. So as a result, truth be known, most of our testimonies are birthed in times of trouble. When we're facing some obstacle and we know if God doesn't come through, it's over. Now, some people suggest that that's where most of our testimonies are birthed because God speaks to us more clearly in time of trial. C.S. Lewis even suggested he shouts to us in our pains. But as much as I love C.S. Lewis, I don't think that's the, the reason why we're more prone to birth testimonies in times of trial. I think the reality is God's always speaking loudly and clearly to us. We only listen. We only tune in when we're going through a trial. It's not that we can suddenly hear. It's that we know we need to hear and we start to listen. And in addition, times of trial show us things about ourselves that we may not want to see but that we need to know so that we can get to where God wants us to be. So it should come as no surprise that the testimonies that really inspire other people, the testimonies we're eager to share, the testimonies we're eager to hear are the ones on the backside of some test, some heartache, some challenge, some dark hour. Now, all of that to say Psalm 40 is that kind of testimony. It was written when David had been to hell and back, And it was written when he still wasn't entirely out of the woods. Many of his countrymen had rejected his kingship and had revolted against him. And to make matters worse, the revolt was led by his own son, whom he loved deeply. And to make matters worse yet, David was aware that he wasn't a totally innocent victim in this mess that in many ways his own sins were coming home to roost. He had sown and it was time to reap. And so he openly confessed his mess, but despite his complicity in the mess, God was still on his side. Because God is on the side of those who trust him, not those who think they're sinless. Those who trust him not those who think they're sinless. And so the rebellion was snuffed out. David reclaimed the throne that God had given to him, but his son was murdered before they could have a face-to-face reconciliation, leaving David with an open wound in his soul and a stubborn residual pain that wasn't going to go away anytime soon. That's why Psalm 40 opens with celebration of deliverance, but ends with the cry for help and for mercy. Now, in the aftermath of God restoring him to his throne, in the aftermath of his deliverance, David did what came naturally to him. He set his experience to music. You see, David was a rapper long before we coined the term rapper. He really was. David was a rapper long before Jay-Z, Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, Eminem, Ice Cube, Snoop Dogg. David penned rap lyrics that captured his joys and his sorrows, his angers and his aspirations. Some of his raps are introspective. Some of them are political. Some of them voice loud complaints. Some of them voice needed confessions. Some of them express thanksgiving. Some of them ask hard questions. Some of them are worshipful. And truth be told, some of David's raps are straight up thug life. Lord, that opposing gang is against me. Smash them to bits. Obliterate them from the earth. I'm sorry, that's thug life. See, never make the assumption that because somebody's your enemy, they're God's enemy. Maybe they're your enemy because they think you're their enemy. Hmm. Hmm. David's raps chron- chronicled his experience at that noisy intersection, not a federal and North Avenue, though that's noisy enough, but that noisy intersection where a holy God intersects with unholy people in an unholy and broken world. And that's always a tough place. And so, true to form, in the aftermath of his trial, David released a new single, quite literally, because he said, God has put a new rap in my mouth. And most biblical scholars believe Psalm 40 is the new rap that God gave him a rap written in observance of his deliverance. And its lyrics testify that in his time of trouble when he was in a dark pit, God heard his cry, brought him up out of the pit, set his feet on a rock, and made his testimony an inspiration to others. Now, in his rap, David intentionally mentioned two things, two things that can't be numbered, two things that can't be counted. And he did so for two reasons. First of all, David recognized that both of those things were critical to his spiritual well-being during his time of trial, but he also did so because the Holy Spirit led him to do so, because all Scripture is Spirit-inspired. And it's God's way of telling us these two things that can't be numbered are indispensable if we're going to transform our tests into testimonies. The first of them is mentioned in verse 5, the second in verse 12. And I love the way David captured in words the first thing that can't be numbered. Have you ever, in a time of difficulty, received a text, an email, a handwritten note from somebody that only contains five words? I'm thinking of you today. And if you've ever received a little note that just says, thinking of you today. You'll know that those few words are powerful. They don't need a lot of explanation. They don't need a lot of commentary. They tell you somebody knows what I'm going through, and they care, and they care enough to let me know. And if they care enough to let me know, they're probably caring enough to pray for me. I thought about you Today, Well, David learned when he was in the pit that God's thoughts toward us, God's little texts that say, thinking of you today, cannot be numbered. God is thinking about us all the time. I remember hearing a testimony, not a church kind of testimony, a life testimony. Years ago, a fellow in his older age said, You know, when I was 20, I didn't care what people were thinking about me. When I got to be 40, I cared about what people were thinking about me. And then when I got to be 60, I realized people weren't thinking about me. Now, that may be true at times with people. They aren't thinking about us. But it's never true with God. The reality is you are on His mind more than He is on your mind. He thinks about you more than you think about Him. His thoughts toward you cannot be numbered. Now, why is that important? It's important because if you've got to turn your test into a testimony, you have to have hope, the conviction that things can change, things can get better, And hope springs from the knowledge that God's people are continually in his thoughts. And God doesn't need to send you a text when you're in the pit. God's already given you the sacred text of his word that tells you again and again, my thoughts towards you cannot be numbered. Nothing can separate you from my love. I'll not forget you, I won't overlook you, I won't lose you in the crowd. I'm aware, and I'm at work. Now, the second thing that David said can't be numbered is equally inspirational, but not at first glance. You have to dig through it for a bit. Because David declared that God's people have an unlimited capacity for sin. That means there is no end to the messes we can make in our lives and in the lives of others. Now think about sin. Nobody had to teach us to sin, did they? No parent ever pulled a child aside and said, here's something you're gonna need to know. Let me show you how to sin. We come by it naturally. We sin in what we do and we sin in what we fail to do. We sin in word, we sin in thought, we sin in deed. We sin in our imagination and we imagine we can sin and prosper. We sin in church, we sin at home, we sin at work, and we sin anywhere and everywhere else. And when we know we're sinning, we disguise our sin, we deny our sin, or redefine our sin as virtue. I'm not blunt and insensitive, I'm just too honest for my own good. We blame our sin on others, it's the oldest sport in the book, and sometimes we even blame our sins on God. Lord, if you had, I wouldn't have. But the one thing we can't do, we can't break free from all sin altogether all the time. That's why John said, if we say we have no sin, we're smoking something. That's the new Northside translation. <laughs> See, where sin is concerned, none of us can ever say, never, never. Our capacity to sin is unlimited. And David had learned that firsthand. Sin had taken him places later in life that he would have never imagined earlier in life. Remember, it was sin that took the courageous champion who took Goliath's life and made him a conniving conspirator who stole another man's wife. David knew sin can take any of us places we would have never imagined. Now, all of this begs the question, David, why mention sin when you're focusing on God's deliverance and His innumerable thoughts toward us? Well, I'd like to suggest that the answer lies in the fact that God has called us to holiness, not to happiness. As so I've shared repeatedly, happiness is a feeling. It's a sense, not always grounded in reality. It's a sense of well-being that's based entirely on our circumstances, which we don't control. So it's fickle, and it's fragile, and it's fleeting. In contrast, holiness is a state of being in which you're complete and being completed because of your eternal relationship with God. It's God making you a whole human being by His grace. And even though it seems contrary to human thinking, here's the reality. If we don't fully appreciate, if we don't understand the depth of our sin, we won't fully appreciate, won't fully understand the depth of God's love. See, the people that best understand the love of God are the people that best understand their own brokenness and their own sinfulness. And because that's true, we live in a world where everybody wants to talk about the God of love. It usually is, a God of love wouldn't. And then what follows is their politics, their persuasion, their preference, their sexuality, you name it. A God of love would. But here's the thing. Many people who talk about a God of love are total strangers to the love of God because they don't understand that the love of God is not some unprincipled, mushy sentimentality of a being who is senile who says, I don't care what you kids do as long as you're having fun. No, the love of God is His principled opposition, His wrath that we studied a few months ago against all the cancer that destroys His image in us. God's love is manifested in His judgment and wrath as much as in His grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so when people talk about a God of love, I want to ask, but do you know the love of God? Because if not, you're talking about something you cannot understand. And if that's the case, why am I listening to you? And yet we read books by people who tell us what a God of love ought to do when they don't know the love of God. You see, if we suffocate our sensitivity to sin, we will unwittingly suffocate our appreciation of God's perfection, of God's holiness, of God's majesty. We'll lose the awe of God. And His call to be holy as He is holy will lose all of its content. If we suffocate our sensitivity to sin, we unwittingly suffocate our appreciation of God's grace and mercy. And the very things that ought to amaze us and humble us will eventually bore us. Not everybody that sings Amazing Grace is feeling that it's amazing. And if you can sing those words without feeling how amazing it is, you need a new dip in your walk with God. If you can speak of grace and mercy the same way you talk about the Steelers and the pirates, something's wrong. But worst of all, if we suffocate our sensitivity to sin, we unwittingly suffocate our appreciation of God's love. And if we don't know how God loves, Or how God's love is expressed? How will we ever fulfill the commandment to love one another as God loves us? David spoke of his innumerable sins because here's what David understood. When your grasp of sin is deficient, your grasp of God's character is deficient. And when your grasp of God's character is deficient, your holiness is deficient, and you miss out on the best that God has for you. David knew a deep love for God grows out of a deep awareness of our sin. Would you read that with me? A deep love for God grows out of a deep awareness of our sin. Now, Jesus confirmed that. He didn't write a rap, but he provided a story from his life. He was having a meal at the home of a wealthy man when suddenly a woman burst into the room, a social faux pas, and began to wash his feet with her tears. This is where it's important to understand Scripture. She wasn't crying and trying to let the tears drop on His feet. In Jesus' day, people collected tears for moments of joy and moments of sorrow in their families. They collected them in airtight bottles, and they collected them for generations so that somebody might have a bottle with the tears of their great-grandmother and their grandfather and their father and their sister in times of joy or in trial. They were an heirloom. They were priceless. And when this woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears, she took that priceless bottle of family memories, family experiences, and uncorked it and poured it liberally upon his feet while she worshipped him. And those who were watching said, why does He let this go on? Doesn't He know what kind of woman she is? And the irony is, Jesus knew exactly what kind of woman she was. Scholars believe she was likely one of the prostitutes He had brought off the street and into the kingdom. But the reality is, she was worshiping because she knew what kind of woman she had been. And her knowledge of what she had been. And what she had done drove her to the feet of Jesus to express her love as extravagantly as she could. And here's what Jesus said, Those who have been forgiven much love much. Did you hear him? So the greater our sense of our own sin, the greater our sense for the love of God and the greater our love for God. The more you know you've been forgiven, the more you understand the depth of your sin, the more you'll love God. Now, what's the essence of discipleship? Loving God with all your being. What makes you love more? The knowledge of the sins that have been forgiven. You see why innumerable sins and innumerable thoughts toward us go together? You can't separate those two. If you do, you're going to miss half of the holiness equation. I am a hot mess. He is a merciful God. He will never reconcile with my sin, but He will reconcile with me by grace. He doesn't love me because He overlooks the ugliness in me. He loves me because He died for the ugliness in me. You see, when somebody knows you as you really are and they love you more than you can imagine, honey, that's love. That's real love. That's the love of God. The greater our sense of our sin, the greater our love for God. Didn't Paul illustrate that? Paul wrote eloquently about the love of God. Paul wrote more about the mercy and grace of God than anybody. But how did Paul describe himself? The chief of sinners. Now, see, that wasn't hyper spiritual rhetoric, wasn't contradiction, wasn't pretension, wasn't hypocrisy. It was heartfelt confession. Paul knew God is awesome because Paul knew I am awful. And when I put my awful against his awesome, I've got to love him. I've got to love him. See, this is one key to keeping our young people in America in our churches. We won't hold them in our churches by giving them rules to live by or telling them how to vote. We'll hold them by showing them the depth of their sin and the majesty of God's forgiveness so they fall in love with Him. I performed a wedding ceremony last Friday evening for Karen and I's first dance instructor, a lovely young lady. And at the end of the ceremony, as I always do after pronouncing them husband and wife, I said, and remember what God has joined together, no man is to separate. Well, in Psalm 40, God joined together two things that can't be numbered, and they should never, never be separated. His stubborn love toward us and our stubborn capacity to sin. Now, holding those two things together isn't easy. At times, it'll be like holding together a challenged marriage. And I say that because in our contemporary Western church culture, many believers' thinking has been influenced more by moral relativism than by scriptural absolutes. And so growing numbers of believers really struggle to concept, to reconcile a God of love with the love of God with a holy, principled passion that shows itself in heaven and hell, in mercy and wrath, in forgiveness and judgment. They fail to recognize the two things that can't be numbered, or they see them as being irreconcilable. But we don't need to reconcile God's love and our sin because you don't need to reconcile things that aren't at odds with one another. I read theological writings that essentially are petitions for divorce between a God of love and the idea of man's brokenness and sinfulness on the basis of supposed irreconcilable differences. I mean, it says something when one of the best-selling books of the last 20 years was entitled Love Wins, a theological writing in which essentially the writer said, for the love of God to win, there can't be a hell. Hell has to be done away with. And, and, and in saying that, the author reduced the two things that can't be numbered to one God's love, minimizing our sin. And in many places, what passes for the gospel is nothing more than a mushy sentimentalism that says, God likes me, wants me to feel good about myself and treat other people well. Versus, God in grace loves me, eternally opposes all the ugliness that is in me and wants to remove it so that I can really treat other people well. And if you can't see the difference between those, then you'll probably go with the current. It takes effort to keep together what God has joined, but if you'll do so, it's worth the effort because you'll discover His holiness and my sinfulness don't contradict one another, they complement one another. If you will hold on to the two things that can't be numbered, Here's what you'll learn, and my final point. The line that divides good from evil doesn't run between God's people and the world out there. It runs right through the middle of God's people. It runs right through me. It runs right through you, but it will never divide you from God's love. Too often. Like the Pharisees, we want to make the line between good and evil the line between our ethnic group and another ethnic group, our political persuasion, another political persuasion, our nationality, another nationality, our lifestyle, another lifestyle. No, the line, the demarcation between good and evil is not between you and another person. It runs right down the middle of your soul. You sleep, you sleep with the enemy every night. But the line that divides me and sometimes makes me feel schizophrenic. And it did for Paul. The things I would do, I don't do. The things I wouldn't do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. That line will not divide you from God. He will not be reconciled to your mess, but he will reconcile you to himself in your mess. Hold on to both things that cannot be numbered. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to know we are a hot mess, so that like that woman of old, we might bow at your feet in humility, not counting the cost, and proclaim, my God, how great thou art. The soul sings of your greatness when the soul knows its own brokenness. And knowing our own sin doesn't destroy our self-image. That's psychobabble. Knowing our sin draws us to the one in whose image we were created so we could discover our real intended selves. So help us to hold on to the two things that can't be numbered in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, before Blaine comes, I want to announce a little contest, an idea. If you are a budding rapper... If you like to set things to lyric and to rhyme and are good at it, I'm giving you to the end of September to submit a wrap of your own writing based on Psalm 40. And it has to include mention of the two things that can't be numbered. You can get it to it by email, text, carrier pigeon, brick through the wall, brick through the window. You can send us a video of it. I don't care, just get it to us by the end of the month. We're going to pick what we feel is the best entry, Alton and others will set it to music, and then the leadership team and I are going to make a video of it. We don't have Notorious B.I.G., but we have Blaine, we call him Notorious C.P.A. <laughs> we don't have M&M, but I'm going to bring my M&M's, all right? So we're, and we don't have Flavor Flav, but Ross is the flavor of the Month, so whatever. We're going to dress the part, and we're going to do the video, and we'll release the single sometime in early November. So if for no other reason than to watch your staff make utter fools of themselves, submit your rap, and we're going to put it together, and we'll be back to you in November, all right? Notorious CPA, come on out.